Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. With me today is Nathan Fox in L.A. We have a ton of letters to go through and a news item to jump into. But before we do that, Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Yeah, loving life in L.A. And um, I'll be teaching all day Saturday, all day Sunday in San Francisco this weekend, and then I'll be back in LA, and then I'll be back and forth. So um, yeah, it's kind of fun having a foot in two different places. And uh, classes are going well. How about you? Classes uh, taken off? Yeah, yeah, they're they're going well. Um, the other night, in fact, in class, I asked everyone if they had read uh, what I had asked them to read. I think two lessons before, and I think. Everyone or almost everyone raised their hand. I, I, it actually really surprised me because uh, it always seems like, you know, there's some somebody who hasn't had a chance to get to it. And there probably were a few people who maybe didn't get to it, but the vast majority did. And I was thoroughly impressed. So uh, wow. this, this group of students is making the effort, you know. Yeah, that's it's so fun. I mean, we, we are just incredibly lucky to be able to teach LSAT students. They're a, an awful, earnest, uh, hardworking, bright <laughs> bunch, aren't they? It's like, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I would be able to teach any other subject besides I'm so spoiled now having had LSAT students for so long. Yeah. Uh, one student, we were talking about uh, Supreme Court uh, oral arguments at one point, and I, I said that I sometimes hear them on the radio when I'm driving home really late at night. And I said, does anyone do this? And no one no one listens to these things uh, on the radio. I just uh, sort of randomly do. But some students said, oh, well, I actually go to the website and I look for them. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, this is why you're going to become an attorney and I'm going to sit here in the the bubble of safety, <laughs> yeah. teaching the LSAT. So yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, this time of year, I get a lot of one particular type of query. I got it yesterday on Twitter from um, Priscilla, and I already responded. But I want to just throw this question at you and see what you say, okay? Because sure. I've been getting this a lot. So it says, 10 weeks until September LSAT. Don't feel ready. Keep going and plan to take or push back to December." Is 10 weeks enough? I would say for most people, yes, it's enough. Uh, you really don't know until you've put in that time and taken practice tests to see where your scores end up. The exception to that might be someone who's dedicated and totally committed to nothing but a 170 and they're too far away from that, maybe in the one low 150s or something like that. But even then, they might be able to make it. So I don't know. I would say, generally say yes. Yeah. Uh, I said, you know, no guarantees that you'll be ready for the September LSAT. But what's the worst that can happen if you push for the September LSAT? Yeah. In fact, that's, uh, that's precisely what you should do, even if you should end up taking it in December because by pushing for September, you'll be further along than you would have been if you had shot for December. Yeah, and the typical student who decides now in July, if you decide in July that you're not taking it until December, then what do you do next? I mean, yeah. human nature says, put the books in the corner, and don't do anything Yeah. until the yeah. fall weather starts to show up and then go, oh shit, I'm taking the test December 3rd. I guess yeah. I better study now. 
And then the next thing you do is you send me a tweet saying, hey, I've only got 10 weeks to prepare for the December LSAT. Don't think I'm ready. <laughs> Should I push it off till February? Um, so anyways, yeah, just I, I knew you would say uh, the right answer there, Ben, which is, um, no, I mean, why not push for the upcoming test whenever the upcoming test is? Push for that as if you're going to take it, and then if you're not ready, don't take it. Obviously, but you'll be uh, you'll have a, a leg up on the next administration after that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, what's on the agenda for today? We got a bunch of emails and a news item. Is that right? Yeah. So this new uh, news item is something that you found, right? And it's something that LSAC is doing that is nice, if if I remember correctly. The LSAC is being magnanimous and generous and friendly here um yeah i maybe they do this every year and i just never noticed but i don't think i've ever heard this before okay good so this was posted on their website and it says uh this is by the way nothing uh pressing for anybody right now so don't you know don't scramble for uh pen and paper here this is just have a preview of what's going to happen in the future. It says LSAC will honor requests for refunds of the additional late registration fee, which is $90, for candidates who choose not to register by the regular registration deadline for the December LSAT because they needed time to consider their options after receiving their scores from the September test. By the way, that's a shitty sentence. That's a very long, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's like they're putting that, you have to get an LSAT question right in order to even understand their news item. Um, no, but here's the point. Candidates who take the September 2016 test, which right now a lot of listeners are going to be taking the September 2016 test, and you're not going to have a valid score for three weeks after that, but you're going to have until October 25th of this year to register for the December 2016 test. At that point, you're going to have to pay the late registration fee, but you can then submit a written request for a refund of the late fee within four days after that October 25th late <laughs> registration deadline. <laughs> well, I can kind of that kind of makes sense, actually, because they would have to change their website, probably. And I could see how it would be difficult for them to change the registration shit on the website. Yeah, maybe. I guess I would rather do that and then not deal with all these emails and written requests going through that. No, but I mean, they're also doing the like rebate, how, how companies do that rebate thing. Like, oh yeah, it's $20 off. Like all you do is you just pay full price and then you submit in triplicate <laughs> a written like, thing and you have to mail it to us and, you know, certified mail. And then, yeah, we'll send you a check that you have to then take to the bank and deposit. Well, anyways, so they are going to issue a refund of that $90 late registration fee if you took the October, or sorry, the uh, September 2016 test. If you take that test and then you register late for the December 2016 test, you're going to have an opportunity to get that $90 late registration fee refunded to you. Now, important, refunds will not be issued to those who were absent or canceled their score uh, or were dismissed from the test. <laughs> um, I was dismissed. Can I have a refund for yeah. signing up late? <laughs> yeah, or I didn't show up. Come on. Um, yeah. So the point is, if you took the test and you and you have a valid score, you're waiting for your score to come back, legitimately yeah. waiting for your score to come back, then you're going to be allowed to register late for the December 3rd, 2016 LSAT and get that $90 uh, refunded to you. Wow. 
Yeah, and uh, we will have a link to that news item in the show notes. Cool. Yeah, so that's them being nice. Uh, it's hard to follow this paragraph, but it's good prep for the test, I guess, itself. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't know that they've – I mean, I've had people – I've had people complain about that before because it's a quick turnaround between the the September test uh, and the December test every year. Yeah. But uh, this year they've actually decided to be sensible and let you wait for your score uh, instead of just making you register for the test. Yeah. Okay, cool. So one last thing. This is unimportant, but I'm just like reading this paragraph right here and thinking about what you were saying about the refunds. I think that uh, a savvy company would do that you know, hey, get a refund, and they know that twenty percent of those will only twenty percent will be processed, and so that they actually don't have to. They're going to make eighty percent of that or whatever. I just don't think that um, it just 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 comes across as so bureaucratic, and uh, I, I I don't even think they're even thinking that. I think they're just. <laughs> it's just that this was a policy created by lawyers. Yeah. And lawyers just don't give a shit about like actually getting business done or making life easy for anybody. They're just like constantly all they're doing is protecting themselves and just putting layers and layers of legalese on top of everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that is kind of how it seems to me too. Like just unnecessary deadlines and you know things that you have to check off like boxes that you have to tick off or else it's not going to work out <laughs> it's like all right <laughs> come on how much money do you guys really need i mean they print money off of lsat students and law school applicants around the world so yeah it does seem i i always do think it seems like they could be a little bit more friendly but then again you know we don't know what it's like to be the lsac i mean they do get sued left and right yeah um, because the, it's that's what i mean we're lucky we don't get sued, Ben. Like, how how is it that I don't ever get sued when all I do, my all my customers are future lawyers? Yeah, um, I don't know. I you know what I guess is just that I try to be nice as I try to be as nice as I possibly can and try to avoid any kind of conflict as much as I possibly can. But um, LSAC seems to be going the other way. Like, no, we're the LSAC. We're a bunch of lawyers. Go ahead, sue us. We dare you. You know, yeah. <laughs> like we, we got all the policies are in advance. You had the, the fine print. You already agreed to all this. There's nothing you could do. And we're just a million lawyers. So go ahead and sue us because we've got the legal firepower behind us. I don't know. Maybe who knows what they're thinking. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Anyways, we have a ton of uh, letters here from yeah. students. Thank you so much for writing in. Uh, I am looking at this first one. This is from, do we, can we say this person's name? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, Brian. And he says, Dear Thinking LSAT Onots. I'm assuming that's in reference to the Octonauts, maybe? Do you remember that? No, not really. Sorry. Oh, okay. So that was when Seth, he's my, uh, he was three at the time, and he interrupted us because he wanted to watch Octonauts. Oh. Oh, I know. I missed that. I Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, so that was uh so maybe that's in reference to that or maybe it's just um his own thinking Elsa Onats. Who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so what is what is this letter uh, telling us or what it, what do we this is a question about uh admission chances, I think, right? Yeah, a lot of thanks, which is really nice. Thank you very much for um, kissing our asses. We appreciate that. 
says that he got a 171 on the test and that he's done with the LSAT forever, which is awesome. He's writing for some law school applications advice and says that he is going to eventually hire a friend of the show, Anne Levine, for consulting, which Ben and I both wholeheartedly endorse that plan. Um, especially when you're applying to, you know, top 14 schools and especially if you have any weird stuff in your application, which this guy does. He has a degree in molecular biology with a biochem minor, and that very likely explains his 2.9 undergraduate GPA. Mm. But he's probably going to have to write some sort of an addendum or whatever to point to the fact that, like, hey, if you, in case you missed it, um, I'm a molecular bio, bio uh, major with a BS. And yeah. so, you know, 2.9 actually was a really good GPA competing with all of those future, you know, doctors that I was going to school with. The 171 LSAT definitely um, is going to help him to make that point. You know, when you show your 171, then they know you have the horsepower, and they're not going to be, I don't think, nearly as worried about your lower GPA. But again, yeah, I mean, you know, I think Anne is going to help um, him make that case. He says, uh, under character and fitness, he has one expunged DUI on record. I have no idea what expunged means, and I don't know if that needs to be disclosed anyway. My guess is, when in doubt, you're going to need to go ahead and disclose. And he is asking for like our advice on his plan or like on his chances or something. And frankly, I don't think we are the right people to be asking that question. You know, I, I think what you need to do is, well, Ben, what are you going to tell him to do? Well, I would tell him to go online, search for the, just search GPA LSAT calculator, and the first thing that will pop up is the calculator that is created by LSAC. It's on LSAC.org. You uh, click on that. You then, of course, have to click some agreement that says these are statistical predictions and not in any way guaranteeing your success of getting into a university. <laughs> again, again, the LSAC with all of their like requirements and disclaimers and everything. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. I point that out actually because the, the checkbox itself is really low on the page and the, the text of course is very long. So the first time I went there, I was like, okay, LSAT GPA calculator. Awesome. I click on this and this thing pops up and I'm like, wait, what? And it just Man, I must be work. in the wrong place. So then you're looking around but if you go down to the bottom, there's like, yeah, I agree to sell my soul. And then you click on that and then you go to the calculator. And the calculator, you just put in your GPA. So for uh, Brian, he just put in 2.93. He would then put in his 171, do submit, and a bunch of schools are going to come up. And as you go down that page, you are going to see your probability based on past uh, acceptances of getting into every school that's in their database um, not all schools participate. In other words, some schools, I guess, have not given them the numbers, but the vast, vast majority of schools are in there, and you can just go down, and they'll give you a probability range. And what I would do with that number, let's say that uh, he put in those numbers, and he looked at a school, and it said that he had a 30 to 55% chance of getting in to that school based on 
LSAT and GPA alone. Use that as a baseline. So you take that baseline, you say, okay, that's my range, 30 to 55% chance. And then think about your application. What else are you bringing to the table? I think people tend to overinflate what they're bringing, but think about it and say, do I have compensating factors that are going to push me up or maybe push me down uh, from this baseline? And then you can start to get a sense, uh, a more accurate sense of what your odds are. I think what a lot of people don't do is they don't start with a baseline. They just sort of assume that there's no way they can get into that school or they assume that, yeah, that's a shoe-in. Whereas you should just, you should start with the numbers. It's hard for people, I think, to work with numbers, but start with the numbers and then try to kind of push those up or push those down based on sort of external factors that this thing is not going to account for. Yeah, and so obviously the molecular biology thing here, I think, is a is a big one. Also, um, you know, looks like he's been working for a while. He's a little older, 34 years old. So he's going to have some professional recommendations and those kinds of things that are going to make uh, his application a little bit more interesting. But we can't speculate to tell you how much more interesting your application is than anyone else's application because we don't really know. And um, also, everyone out there is a special snowflake. And, um, you know, you've all got... Um, things in your application that are going to be attractive to the schools. So I think this is sort of a blanket, we don't know. And we would really like to encourage people to use the LSAT GPA calculator and then, yeah, put your best foot forward on your applications. But we can't, we, we like hearing from you, but we just can't speculate on what your chances are at any school or really give you that much advice about where to apply. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry. I mean, we're, we're happy to try, but we've recommended the LSAT GPA calculator a million times now, and, uh, you know, we'll continue to recommend it. <laughs> but uh, that's about, like, we just can't get any closer than that. Like, those are the numbers. The numbers don't lie. I don't know what we can tell you beyond that. Uh, one last thing for Brian. He says here that he is planning to... Um He's planning to work with Anne Levine, right? Like, it's not yes. just, is that right? Okay. And he wants to consult with her once he's done all that he can do to sharpen up his application. When I read that, my reaction was if you're going to hire Anne Levine, I would just go ahead and hire her because she's going to then tell you right from the beginning hey, this is what you should be working on so that he's not wasting his time, his effort to sort of get his ducks in a row, which may all turn out to be wasted yeah. because she's like, no, why, why are you focusing on that? You should be focusing on something else. Who knows? Like she's not going to spend all her time at the beginning. She's just going to spend a little time, I assume, say, hey, where are you at? What have you done? Okay, now go focus on this and get back to me so yeah. that his efforts are well spent. Yeah, it's similar to like when you're going to, if you're going to hire a private tutor, if you're going to pay me a you know a bunch of money to be your private one-on-one LSAT tutor, I think you should pay me sooner rather than later because I'm going to keep you from banging your head against the wall wasting time on a bunch of ill-advised self-prep. I would think you would say the same, Ben, if someone's going mm -hmm. to hire you as a tutor, and then I'm sure Anne would say the same thing. If you're going to hire her, like make life you're paying a lot. What you're paying is paying for convenience and for making your life easier. So I would say go ahead and hire her right off the bat, and um, then she'll help you not waste time crafting your application. Yeah, and I would like to reiterate what you're saying. I would rather work with someone up front and then let them go 
then work at the work with them at the very end. I think sometimes people are like, "Oh, but I need to be working with you right up to the test." Yeah, that's ideal. That'd be great if we could be meeting up to the test. But I'd rather work with you now, get you headed in the right direction, and then have you do the rest on your own if it if it comes to that, than to do the reverse and have you do a lot now and then sort of try to scramble at the end and fit in everything that's we can fit in. Before. Yeah, totally. I would rather correct this, the, the easy stuff now instead of having you just make those same mistakes over and over and over and over for the next two months of inefficient self-study. Why not just make your studying as efficient as possible by meeting now as soon as possible? And then, yeah, w once you're done, you know, once you've worked with me for a while, taken a class or worked with me one-on-one, -on -one, then the rest of your preparation is going to be so much more efficient because you'll know what to work on. You'll be working on the right things and in the right way. Yeah. Okie doke. Is that it for Brian? I think so. Okay, cool. Here we go. Hey, Nathan and Ben, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen to it while I'm at work, and I find it very helpful and insightful. I hear that a lot, by the way, people that, that listen to the podcast at work, which makes me laugh. It reminds yeah. me of my fake jobs that I've had in the past where I was just sitting there watching the clock, um, <laughs> you know, trying to kill time. So anyways, yeah, hey, happy. Glad we can provide you some entertainment while you're sitting in your cubicle. I started from the beginning of the podcast, and I'm trying to catch up to the current day. I'm on episode 38. Oh, well, so then Redacted might not hear this uh, for another, like, year. <laughs> but uh, anyway, let's see. Okay. Planning to sit for the December LSAT. A... Originally planning on waiting until the June test, but decided to just go ahead and take it December which I think makes a lot of sense. I don't know why people want to wait so long to take the test. I think they should usually just pick the first test that will work with their schedule and shoot for that. My question is, would it make more sense to take an LSAT course first in August, learn everything it has to teach, and then practice through self-studying for two months until December? Oh, okay, so perfect. So that was exactly what we were just talking about. Um, clearly, you should take the class as soon as, as, soon as you can. As yeah. soon as you have time, that's when you should take the prep course. You should not save your prep course so that it like fits perfectly up until the, the LSAT that you're looking to take. I would much rather have people sooner, even if it's a year until you're going to take the test, I would like to have you in my LSAT class right now so that we can start practicing the right way and get you equipped to self-study. Otherwise, I just feel like you're wasting time self-studying. Then we have another question. Oh, yeah. again. So this is, again, this is another one of these questions where it's like, hey, here's my GPA. Here's what my major was. And what LSAT should I be shooting for in order to get scholarships at blah, blah, blah schools? And really, you got to use the LSAT GPA calculator. We just can't tell you. So put in an LSAT score, put in a GPA. And if your LSAT score and GPA makes you like a 95% chance to get into that school, then you're probably a scholarship candidate at that school. Yeah. If it makes you a 30% chance to get into that school, then you're probably not a scholarship candidate at that school. And that's just simple as that. So you guys need to just take the LSAT GPA calculator and go use it and play with it. And um, yeah, we, we, um, we would love to help, but that's our best advice. I don't think we can help further than that. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, and that is redacted. Well, thank you, redacted, for writing into the show. Yeah. And uh, 
I hope you hear about that sometime soon. Yeah. All right. So this this next uh, this next letter is from Rachel. Uh, she says, first, I would like to say, keep the music. It's my LSAT fight song. Uh, good. We will do that. Okay, cool. I still cringe every time I hear it, even though I picked it out. I hear it, and I'm like, oh, my God, what a dork I am. But, uh, yeah, we got so many votes for it that it sounds like it's gonna, it's, it's staying. All right. Cool. She also says that when she feels frustrated and confused, the podcast makes her feel better. So that's that's. Great to hear, but it does. I'm going to forward she, this on to my mom so that she can be proud of me. This is great. Okay. Your mom's already proud of you. She is? Yeah. I, she right? listens to the no. show sometimes. I think she does listen to the show once in oh, a while. Oh, she does? Yeah. Okay. Hi, yeah. She's like... Sorry for all the F-bombs. <laughs> Your mom doesn't like F-bombs. Um, my mom is what you would call a woman of faith. Okay. And so, yeah, I don't think she appreciates my... Um, crassness all that much <laughs> <laughs> all right well hey nathan's mom i hope it's going well uh how often does she listen do you think i have no idea i just every once in a while i hear i hear that she has listened i mean she, maybe she listens to every episode but she definitely listens to like the interviews and stuff and she she was like loving when nikki black was on the show she thought that that was the greatest thing ever so oh cool um, it was kind of cool. Actually, I did a happy hour um, in San Francisco a couple weeks ago with like alumni from my past classes, current class and um, alumni from past Fox LSAT classes. We had like a happy hour get together. Yeah. And it just so happened that um, my friends Mike and Nikki came, Nikki from who, who was on the podcast 10 episodes ago or so, the uh, immigration attorney, Nikki Black. And she was going around meeting people. And she was a celebrity at this thing because so many of the people were podcast listeners. And oh, so wow. she was getting like, you're Nikki Black? Oh, my God. It's so nice to meet you. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think my family uh, listens, but um, I'm totally fine with that. So. Uh. <laughs> well, I apologize <laughs> if your family, I apologize for my F-bombs to your family as well. Oh yeah, if they ever listen. Yeah, okay. it's not that I. Yeah, I'm happy if they would listen, but I, I don't. You know, they don't care about this stuff. I'm the black sheep, anyways. I'm the one who went into the law. Everyone else was into science or engineering, so they're wondering what I what I'm doing. So yeah, that's okay. Uh, we still hang out. All right. So she says she's a non-traditional student. She's 33 years old. She graduated eight years ago from Weber State in Utah. She has a 3.0. Um, she says some stuff here and she basically wants to practice in Utah. She's looking at the University of Utah and BYU, two schools that are in Utah. Um, what is this? Oh, okay. So she has a 3.0 and she this is kind of like what we were just talking about actually. She is saying that these schools require a 3.6 or a 3.7 GPA and so she's thinking that to get in given her 3.0 She's going to need to get a 165 or higher. Now, uh, as we were just saying, um, you should go to the LSAT GPA calculator. It just so happens that I actually did this for Rachel. So uh, she would want to play around with these numbers more. But to kind of hammer home this point, I guess, if she got a 162 with her 3.0, According to the LSAT GPA calculator, she'd have a 50% chance at getting in at 
the University of Utah, and under 50% chance at BYU. So it sounds like BYU is a slightly more competitive school. If she got a 165, those numbers jump up to 65% chance of getting in at the University of Utah and above a 50% chance at BYU. So that's exactly what we're talking about. Go in, put in different numbers, and see where you get to a point where you have a reasonable chance of giving getting in, over 50% chance. At that point, um, that's a score that, at least you can apply with for sure. It doesn't guarantee, nothing guarantees that you'll get in, but you can get a sense of like, oh, at least based on other people, I have over a 50% chance of getting in. So I don't know. So she goes into a lot of things here. What do we want to talk about? She wants to get your book, the Logic Games book. So that's okay, good. Cool. Yeah. And um, she has the Power Square Logical Reasoning Bible. Um, oh, I remember what this is. So in this paragraph, uh, this is kind of a long email, Rachel, so I'm sorry if we don't get to everything. But she said that I heard that it is best to study with background <laughs> noise so that things won't bother you on the official test. Uh, what do you say to that? <laughs> um, uh, really, no. It's going to be probably quiet mostly during the in, in the testing center. I mean, there's going to be little background noises. There can be noises. Um, but I would not intentionally study with background noise. Like there's those LSAT timer apps that are out there that have like fake background noises in them. And yeah. that to me just seems a little ridiculous. Um, you know, I, I would set yourself up for success and try to study in a place where you're going to be able to focus. Yeah. Um, I would also though say maybe study in diverse uh, different environments. So um, sure, study with the kids um, playing in the background as long as they're not going to like come up and ask you to watch Octonauts, you know, while you're doing a timed section, because that's not what we're looking for. Um, but yeah, you can go to Starbucks and um, put fake headphones in so that no one will talk to you and just do a 35 minute section at Starbucks where there's going to be some background noise. You could go to the public library, you could do it um, in just various different environments. But no, I, I don't think I would intentionally like study on the BART train just so that you get like a crazy external circumstances. I, that's, I don't know. I don't yeah. Know. What do you say about that? Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. She says I did this, she did her test, her first diagnostic, she got a 144 and she said that she did it with kids, et cetera, making noise, interrupting, et cetera. I, when my kids, I don't know how old her kids are, but when my kids interrupt me, even while I'm just sitting there writing an email, something as mundane as that, it kind of throws me off. I'm like, okay, I was almost done with this explaining whatever, and then now it's like I got to divert attention to this. And even if the answer is yes, you can watch Octonauts by, which is not great parenting, by the way. I'm trying to be better. <laughs> uh, if that's my response, it still like derails you. And so I can't imagine taking a timed section where you focus is paramount and having a discussion you're not going to have that kind of interruption on actual test day so i i would i would yeah like you said set yourself up for success and once you start scoring really well if you really want to shake things up to see if you can hold it together because you feel like this is a problem maybe a little bit but even then like i i would just try to recreate the actual test conditions yeah which are going to be pretty quiet and are not going to have explicit interruptions happening you know um, yeah I, I set yourself up for success and also like I don't want to hear your excuses like remove potential excuses 
from you know your explanation of why you didn't score as high as you would like. Yeah. It's yes, I get it. If you get distracted, you're not going to do as well as you would have liked. Good. So don't put yourself in that situation then. Um, I'd rather have you get one productive hour of studying in than four unproductive hours of studying. So if you have to go, you know, even if you have to leave your apartment, like, have you ever gotten the, the like, oh, my cat kept bothering me? Have you ever heard people say yeah, that? Yeah, it has. I've heard it for dogs. Like their dog wanted a certain toy, and they kept giving their dog the toy that would get lost, and they'd go get it for them. I was like, whoa, whoa. This is going to be wildly unpopular, but man, fuck your dog. I don't care about your dog. Like, go <laughs> be a serious person, okay? You're going to be a lawyer. That's a very serious career. Prepping for the LSAT is not super easy. I love your dog. Don't get me wrong. You can play with your dog all you want for 23 hours a day. But for the hour that you're going to do some LSAT prep, you got to, if you, you know, and if your dog is going to distract you if you're home, then yeah, maybe you have to leave. That's what happens when you own a dog. So maybe you have to go out of the house and go find somewhere quiet and sit and study in a place where you're not going to be interrupted. Because if you're if that's going to be your thing, like, oh, yeah, well, I try to study at home, but, you know, my roommates are always making noise. And, oh, yeah, I was trying to study at home, but my cat was sitting on my head. Uh, like, what are we doing here, people? What are we doing? What? Yeah. <laughs> like, we're wasting, that's wasting time now. You know, you think you're studying, but you're not really studying. Like, People study with the TV on in the background. People mm -hmm. study with, um, they've got their phone, like they're using their phone as a timer, which is fine, but they didn't put it in airplane mode. So now they're getting text messages and Twitter alerts and new connections on Tinder, uh, like while they're trying to do a 35 minute section of the LSAT. Yeah. And even if you're not doing a 35 minute section, for those of you who are like, well, I don't do it with the 35 minute section. What about just studying in general? Just, just stop. It's just the world can take a break, and you need to take a break from it. Absolutely. Um, multitasking is you know, not even a thing. Um, you think you're multitasking, but you're really not. All you're doing is switching from one thing to the other, and then back to the first thing, and then back to the other thing. So you know, I'd rather have quality over quantity, so let's, let's just commit now to focusing for this hour or whatever it's going to be, and remove all of those potential distractions, remove all of those potential excuses, and now, like, let's really do our best and let's really learn and make the most of this time instead of allowing all of these distractions to happen. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really not yelling at, uh, what is this, Rachel? I'm not yelling yeah. at, at Rachel particularly. I just, I hear so many of those comments, you know, over and over. And everybody's always got an excuse for why they didn't do as well as they would have liked on their last practice test. And I, I'm not, I just, I don't really care. I, I would prefer that you just don't put yourself in that situation to begin with. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree completely. So this next one is, this is an interesting question. She says, I, kn I know you say to do a section and review, but my concern is as a low scorer is how to figure out why the answer is right. I think there is a valid point here. I was reading a something the other day. Jeez. I think it's in the book Smarter, Faster, Better. But the idea was what what is the best way for people to learn? And the book talked about how you can have people who experience things. They try to do something and then learn from that experience. Then you have people who are just told what to do and how they learn from that. And 
Then there was the the combination of both, where you have people who are being told what to do and experiencing trying to do it themselves and they said that hands down the combination was the best right and i think we've talked about this before where a lot of people they go by the power score bible or whatever and all they do is read the the strategies yeah and then you have uh some people too on the other side of this who are just doing tests after test after test and not necessarily i mean they might try to review but i think like what she's saying here when you're a low scorer and you kind of don't know what's going on there is limited value to that review because it's like, hey, uh, I don't know. I don't know. So what do I take away from this? You're going to learn a lot from that. But I do think that especially at the beginning, you should be taking sections and learning from them, but also uh, trying to read as much as you can about that. If you're self-studying, that means uh, getting the Power Score Bible and reading and doing a mix of both so that you can then take that knowledge and implement it into your practice. Yeah, I mean, all six of my LSAT books, which are all available on Amazon, by the way, but all six of my books take real LSAT questions and then thoroughly explain those questions. So if you got my first book, which is Cheating the LSAT, that's an entire prep test followed by an explanation of every single question on the test. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a book like that for prep test 61 and prep test 62 and prep test 63. So there's three tests worth of review you could do if you wanted to do it that way. Um, If you got my logical reasoning encyclopedia, that's 550 logical reasoning questions, uh, which are followed by thorough explanations. So, you know, there it's not like timed sections, but still you can attempt the question on your own and then reason through it with me and hopefully that will help you figure it out. Um, So I think all my books would be helpful in this situation. I would also say, you know, a study partner here could be really helpful. She mentions her husband. Um, Her husband is not studying for the LSAT. He's in tech, but uh, at her level, if she's scoring 142, at her level, I'm pretty sure that her husband would be able to help her figure out the first 10 logical reasoning questions. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, if he's in tech, he's, you know, if he's a programmer, a developer of some sort, he's got to be good at logic. And I would think that if she made mistakes in the first 10, which I'm sure she's doing, if she scored 142, then she could just sit and review those first 10 with him. And I bet he could help her to figure out why the right answer is right and why the wrong answer is wrong. Yeah. Well, and the good news for Rachel is that it sounds like she got about 10 wrong in each of her logical reasoning sections, and she got only seven right in the games. So she lost a lot of the points in the games, and that's another section that, uh, I mean, I don't know how much he could help with that, but even just uh, talking through them could be better than just trying to do it herself. But the the good news I'm saying is that since she missed so many in games, yeah. It looks like she can just focus on that a lot and change her score a lot. Okay. Why does she have this book with the February 92 tests in it? I also didn't know not to buy old tests, and I have the first book from tests from February 92. That's not where I would start. I mean, no. is, is she really going to do all 78 of the, pra- of the prep tests? I mean, February of 92, so that's like the first or second book in the LSAC series. Uh, yeah. actual official series, I would put that aside and I would go ahead and get one of the newer books. 
February 92, that actually sounds like maybe the super prep book, which does have written explanations in the back. So if that's true, that could be helpful, at least for the logical reasoning and reading comp. Okay. But if it's just a book of tests, I would say no. Yeah. Yeah. All right. She says she can't start law school for at least two years. So um, she has time to study. Doesn't necessarily tell us, though, when she could take the LSAT because she could take it whenever she's ready and keep it for at least three years, usually five. So Yeah, and plan on having two backup dates. So, you know, even if she's planning to start law school in 2018, I would think she needs to think about taking her first LSAT possibly as early as December of this year. Yeah. If she really wanted to apply early for that 2018 class, she would want to have her application in by Thanksgiving of 2017, and she has to have the LSAT done before that, and she might need to take the LSAT three times um, just, you know, for backup sake. Um, so, yeah, like December 2016, I don't think is too soon for her to be thinking about a first uh, attempt. Yeah. So it's good that she's studying now because now is the time to study, and people tend to think they have longer than they actually do. Yeah. So this next question, she says she's studying with an online app. I, the only thing I would say to this, I got nervous when I saw that because I feel like a lot of these online apps use made-up LSAT questions. Uh, it might be hard for her to figure out whether they're actually official questions or not, but um, if they're not official, it's a waste of time. Well, I mean, I could tell her for certain if it was free, then they are not real LSAT questions. Oh, is it free? Well, I'm, I'm just guessing. You know, maybe if, if it's free or even if it's cheap, like it has to be expensive or else you're not doing real LSAT questions. That's right. You, ha- you have to pay, they have to pay LSAC anywhere from four cents to six cents, right? Per question. So if you have a, a, a small app with a hundred LSAT questions on it, that's going to cost them at least, or probably at least four dollars, probably five or six dollars. And they're not making any money on that. So. Yeah, they wouldn't. They would be making zero dollars at that point. They probably have to mark it up for. I would, yeah, I would imagine that the Apple Store is going to take some money off of that. And so, yeah, so, <clears throat> I mean, we don't know what this app is, where, how she's accessing it, what the name of it is, or anything. If she wants to write us in and talk talk to us about this app particularly, we would be happy to check it out and give people our opinion. But my gut is telling me you're probably doing fake LSAT questions, which is a pretty brutal, inefficient waste of time. Yeah. Now, she just said that she learned the whole sufficient necessary concept last week. She's still a little confused on it. She says, quote, a sufficient will have a necessary, but a necessary doesn't have to include a sufficient, correct? <sighs> nope. Wow. Um, yeah. So you did not learn the sufficient and necessary concept you are, yeah, you're more than a little bit confused. A sufficient condition always has a necessary condition, and a necessary condition always has a sufficient condition. Yeah. Those terms just define the relationship between the two conditions. Yeah. Essentially, it's an if-then statement. And if there's an if, then there's a then. And if there's a then, then there had to be an if. Otherwise, you don't actually have a conditional statement Um, You know, the example that I would always use in class is if you're in Los Angeles, then I know you're in California. So Los Angeles is sufficient. California is necessary. When you do the contrapositive, that becomes if you're not in California, 
then you cannot be in Los Angeles. So now not California is sufficient and not Los Angeles is necessary. But no, you're, you're always going to have an if and a then or else you don't even have a conditional statement. Yeah. I have some blog posts um, that we can put in the show notes, uh, blog posts that I wrote, like what sufficient means and what necessary means. And maybe we'll link to those in the show notes and see if those are helpful for her as like basic resources. Yeah. I am not selling this online, but I'm, I also have a 100-page book on conditional statements alone. <laughs> wow. 100 pages. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it goes through some... Uh, must be true questions as well that are very formulaic. Must be true questions. Okay, you just give that away as part of your class. Is that what? Part of the class. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Anyways, if Rachel, if you're interested in that, I'm happy to send that to you uh, at cost. Okay. Well, I don't know actually. I have to figure out what I would have to do about that since I'm it's part of the class. But anyways, happy to try to figure that out. All right, logical reasoning question. Discussions are super helpful. Great. She says the app is telling her to remember that cannot can be true except means cannot be true. Is it useful to memorize this? I don't know that you need to memorize it, but you should know that, right? So I guess if you don't, you should memorize it. Yeah, I mean, you need to just think about the nature of the correct answer versus the nature of the wrong answers. So in a very simple context, if there's one that must be true, that's like maybe the LSAT's most common question, right? Which one of the following must be true? Yeah. If there's one that must be true, then that means there's four that could be false. And they can ask that same question in like a reverse sort of a way. If they ask it as an accept question, they would say, each of the following could be false except. And then you have to think like, well, wait, now if there's four that could be false, oh, I see, then there's one that must be true. And so you can make your life easier when you are able to translate um, between the, the different ways that they ask the same question. Yeah. So yeah, when they this is, I think, a pretty common um, logic games question stem. Each of the following could be true except. Yeah. And yeah, that's just a must be false question. Yeah. There's even games where it's like, which one of the following must be false? That's one question. And then the very next question says, each of the following could be true except. Yeah. And that's also a must be false question. So that, those are exactly the same things. Yeah, one, one thing to keep in mind about the games is basically there are four questions. There's what must be true, what could be true, what could be false, and what must be false. And that's it. So uh, they may word it in different ways or use accept or whatever, but it's going to be one of those four things. So just figure out which one it is. Um, anyways, the next question is as kind of what we already talked about, but would it be a good idea to read the whole logical reasoning Bible before taking another practice test? I would say no, uh, do a good portion of it, try to really understand it, learn from it, and then put that into practice as you take a practice section. I wouldn't necessarily be worrying about a lot of practice tests right now where she's at. Yeah. Practice tests. I, yeah. Right. Do sections, 35-minute timed sections, review your mistakes, figure out what you suck at, and then go back to the Logical Reasoning Bible and use that as a resource. Or my, logic, uh, my, my Logical Reasoning Encyclopedia, I would also suggest. Um, you know, you identify, oh man, I missed a whole bunch of flaw questions on this test. Oh, well, here's a good way that you can drill flaw questions and get explanations. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's see here. Oh, okay. She says, 
Uh, on must be true questions, is it true that you're looking for the contrapositive or a restatement from the stimulus? And by stimulus, she means passage. Um, are we looking for those things? I mean, definitely a restatement from the stimulus would be a great answer on a must be true question. Or it could just be any connection between the statements as they were given. You're just looking for the thing that has to be true based on what the passage said. That's what a yeah. must be true question is. So yeah, sometimes it can be the contrapositive of one of the statements that they gave you. Sometimes it can be a connection between the statements that they gave you. Sometimes it can just be a restatement of one of the things that they gave you. It's basically just, hey, there's one here that has to be true. It's been proven to be true by the given facts. And then there's four that are outside the scope of what they were talking about or different or stronger or just in some way don't have to be true. Yeah. Uh, this next question, sometimes I understand the main point of the passage, but I didn't have it stand out in the passage. Is it necessary to reread the stimulus or the passage and underline it? Well, I don't think it's necessary to uh, underline it, but if, if you're asked a question like, which one of the following, if true, weakens the argument? Or which one of the following, if true, strengthens the argument? Or which one of the following is the argument is most vulnerable to criticism on which one of the following grounds? Or something like that. In other words, if you're looking at a flaw question, a weakened question, a strengthened question, a uh, necessary assumption question, sufficient assumption question, if you have not explicitly identified the main point of the passage in your mind somehow, in some way, shape, or form, then yes, you do need to go. Re you need to go back, and you need to find it because the correct answer is going to hinge on your ability to find the main point and to figure out why that main point has not been proven. Yeah, I don't. I don't personally underline the main point, but you do have to be able to spot their main point. I mean, if they're yeah. making an argument, then that means some of what they've said is evidence, and one thing that they've said is their ultimate conclusion of the argument. And if you don't know what the conclusion is, you, you cannot answer a strengthened question or a weakened question or even any of these assumption questions or you're basically just screwed. I mean, if you don't know what the conclusion is of that argument, how can you possibly answer the question? Yeah, or, you know, unfortunately what does happen, right, is that people do answer the easier ones and their mind sort of like saves them. It's like, oh, yeah, D makes sense. This would This would weaken the mass of stuff that I just read mm. and then they get this sense that like they don't need to find the conclusion or they just do whatever their gut sort of tells them but it's not a process no. for success in the long run it's not about whether this guy is a good guy you're not trying to weaken the overall position you're not trying to you know you, you for sure can't attack a premise and yeah. just saying oh you're biased that doesn't do anything because he can be biased and still be right yeah so you you really do need to understand this. It's a it's a form of like ritualized combat. You know, this is like boxing or something where it's like, oh yeah, we're fighting, but we have very specific rules about what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. And so the the type of battling that you're supposed to be doing on the logical reasoning is, I'm going to grant you your premises, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to tell you why your premises don't quite add up to your conclusion. Yeah, And you can't do that if you don't know what their conclusion was. So for sure, you have to understand the conclusion of the argument. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 
All right, so her next thing is she says, I'm also interested in both of you. I'm also interested in the fact that both of you do online classes. She's at a job where she can listen to music, et cetera, the whole time. This is another person. (laughs) This is great. Uh, What's the cost of the online classes? Do you offer a payment plan, et cetera? Well, yeah. I have an online class that corresponds with the 100-hour course, and people have taken it from several different states. Uh, including Hawaii, and yes, I have a payment plan. Yeah, same thing. I have an on-demand program. It's the equivalent of my full-length LSAT class. Mine costs $995. All the um, materials are included, and you can pay a 50% uh, down payment deposit to get started. That gets you all the materials and everything, and then you can pay for the rest of it uh, over time. Ooh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to say the cost. The cost is actually the same. So it's nine ninety five and the payment plan is three payments. And it does include materials, same thing. I'll just ship them out to you and you can start watching as the class uh, unfolds. Yep. So cool. Oh, she says that some of the other podcasts she's listened to are very bland and make everything sound so wonderful. That that was <laughs> that was actually interesting to hear because I have not listened to any other podcasts. That's probably bad because I'm like in the industry and not really paying attention to what other people are doing. But um, I'm not also that surprised that people would probably like to sit down and pretend that the law is so exciting and everyone should get in it and send them money. <laughs> yeah. Also, LSAT people are tend to be super boring. So, I mean, it's like, I'm not surprised. that I wouldn't like to hear someone else talk about the LSAT. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that that's bland. And sure, people who are in the business tend to be pretty optimistic about it. Plus, they're trying to sell you something, you know, so they want to yeah. make you... Like, when I look at the advertisements that I see from some of the big test prep companies, that some of them are just intolerably um, over-optimistic. Like, I saw one one time where it was like, oh, yeah, you know, you take this class and then you get this score and then you get a BMW. It literally had that on the advertisement. <laughs> and I was like, you know, oh, man, this is so, you guys are so evil for trying to do that because that is absolutely not what my vision is for the, you know, of people going into the legal profession. Well, no, and plus I wonder, like, that seems pretty misguided. I wonder how many people today are going into law solely for the money. I think that a lot of people are. I'm not saying that they don't exist, but I feel like most people that I talk to in class, which is probably a biased sample, but they have a, a, a another goal beyond just money that's motivating them. Yeah, I hope you're doing it because you want to change the world, or I hope you're doing it because you've done the work before and you just enjoy the work. If you know, if you like lawyering, if you like debating, and you like policy, and you you just want to get in the trenches and do the work, um, then I'm all in favor of your plan. But yeah, if you're doing this because you think like, oh, this is a good career, and I'm going to make a lot of money out of it, and ah, whatever, the work's the work. I don't care. I just want to make money. Then I really think you should, you know, go to business school or start your own business or work in tech or basically do anything other than be a lawyer. Oh, yeah. I agree. (laughs) But uh, uh, so last uh, couple questions here. How much weight is leadership experience given in the application process? I would say it's important. Sure, it'd be great if you can show that you were a leader. But uh, this is going to come after GPA and LSAT. We've talked about that several times before, I think. Um, She says, "Uh, I have no experience at all. Whatever. It helps. But I mean, there are plenty of 20-year-olds that apply to law school. So, you know, you... 
and and by the way, your like high school leadership experience is probably not as impressive as you might think it is. So no, I, I don't care. These these other factors, I mean, they're just gonna pale in comparison to LSAT and GPA. And when you're looking at a you know, Rachel's got her stuck on her one forty two LSAT or one forty four LSAT on her first diagnostic. I mean, she needs to let go of all the other elements of her application and just worry about getting that LSAT score up to one sixty. Yeah, you know, if she because if she doesn't get to one fifty five ish, right, or one sixty ish, that's when both of us kind of cringe. Like, uh, I don't know if you should actually go to law school or not. Yeah, and so I, that's I think where her attention should be. All those other factors on her application, they're not going to matter that much if she has the numbers in the right spot. Yep, I agree. So she says, I've been out of school for eight years, so I can't really ask professors for letters of recommendation. Uh, that's not true, right? Not true necessarily, but I mean, I can see how it would be a little bit difficult to go back eight years later. Then again, I mean, professors do write letters of recommendation very frequently, so they're used to this. If you had a professor that you really loved, you took maybe more than one class with them, or you worked really closely with them, and you got an A in their class, um, yeah, you could always come back with an email. I'm sure you don't remember me, but I definitely remember you. I loved your class. I took it eight years ago. I got an A. I'm really sorry to bother you. I know you're busy, but um, I'm applying to law school now, and I, I, I'm wondering who to ask for a letter of recommendation, and I just, do you think it would be appropriate if I asked you for a letter of recommendation? Something like that. I mean, if they don't, respond or if they respond somewhat tepidly then maybe i would move on and get a letter from someone else yeah but i would think you could ask a professor then again having been out of school for eight years i'm not sure how appropriate it is to get these it's not that you couldn't ask it's just maybe you know i, I would think it would be appropriate here to have only professional professional letters wait that's a question i actually have isn't don't a lot of schools require one, at least one academic letter of recommendation? I, I don't think so anymore. I think I remember Anne saying that if you've been out of school for a few years, you don't need a, an academic letter anymore. Oh, okay. I, I'm not 100% sure. So, you know, again, that's a question for Anne. Um, we should have her back on soon to answer questions like that. But I'm pretty sure that you could go all professional letters if you've been out of school for that long. That's a long time. Eight years is a long time. Huh. I guess I, I had, I, because I was under the assumption that schools were requiring it, I was like, oh, well, you just have to do it. Well, if the school requires it, then the school requires it. But I think. Well, if, but maybe they don't. Yeah. yeah. So I was under the assumption that they do. But yeah, okay. Yeah. If you do, you did say in there to go to a professor who gave you an A. And I think that's really, really important. I think people are drawn to professors who like them or who they liked. But that's not the same as a professor who gave you an A and thus academically approved of your performance. Right. Um, also, remember that you don't have to necessarily ask professors. If you went to a big institution like I did, uh, UC Davis, um, you know, most of my classes were 100 people, big lectures, and those professors definitely had no idea who I was. Um, but I did have smaller discussion groups with TAs, uh, graduate student TAs, and it's totally appropriate to have that grad student, um, if they were the one you know, grading your work uh, and working with you closely, it's totally appropriate to have a grad student write you that letter of recommendation. So that maybe gives you some more options for people that you can try to reconnect with in order to get a letter. Yeah. 
Okay, I, I don't think... She, I mean, the one other comment she says is, I've been considering doing service and volunteer work just to get a letter. Uh, no, that's what you were just saying before. She needs to focus all of her time on the LSAT, the time that she does have. She said she works a lot. She has kids. She has a spouse who works full-time and attends school. I don't know how she's doing all this, but um, any spare moment you have should be poured into the test. Yeah, the world's best letter of recommendation is not going to be worth the <clears throat> four or five more LSAT points you could get in the time um, that it would require you to do this service or volunteer opportunity. Generally, you know, you should just never be doing service and volunteer stuff in order to build your resume. If you're doing it because you want to make the world a better place, that's great. If you're doing it because you um, want to make connections in the legal profession, that's also great. But if you're doing it because you think it builds your resume or that you're going to get some letter of recommendation out of it, that's just bogus. I mean, I think the law school committees are going to see right through that as well, right? Because it's going to be like, oh, she volunteered for two weeks. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. I, hope, I hope she stays with us, you know? <laughs> but <laughs> it's not yeah. really the most compelling um, letter. Yeah. Cool. She ends with saying, I love the episode with the reading comp, which we talked about earlier. So she learned a lot and would love for us to do more, which we will. So thanks again, Rachel. I think that's that's all for today. Uh, we'll do more pretty soon here. If you have any questions, you can always email us at help at thinkinglsat.com. That goes to both Nathan and I. Uh, oh, Nathan and me. Um <laughs> We're trying to, trying to get it right there. Uh, and you can also just email us directly, Nathan at FoxLSAT.com or Ben at StrategyPrep.com. And yeah. And you have anything else? Well, you can tweet me at InFox. You can tweet the show at ThinkingLSAT. Uh, we really do appreciate all of your letters. Um, we are going to do a lot less speculation in the future about what your chances are at various schools. So, um, you know, you can save the email that asks us what your chances are because um, we're just going to refer you back to the LSAT GPA calculator again. But for uh, real LSAT questions or questions about how to prep or any of those types of things, I mean, we love to hear that. So thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. It is humbling to know that you guys are out there and listening to the show. Yeah, we, it's great. It's like the most delightful thing I think I've done in my professional career is uh, running this podcast. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We wouldn't be doing it if you weren't listening. Yeah, thank you. And have a lovely two weeks. Yeah, oh, actually, it's going to probably be less than that, huh, Ben? Because we're coming back. Um, we're recording again in another week. We we're apologize for um, there's been kind of less shows than usual coming out recently. We had some technical problems that uh, caused us to get a little bit delayed. But we're going to get back to our every other week schedule. And um, I think we're going to just have the next episode should be in one more week. So this one will be, um, there'll be a short turnaround before the next one. And then we'll be back yes. to the regular two-week schedule. Yes. So have a lovely week. And then <laughs> two weeks after that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds good. All Thanks. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Thanks, everybody. Bye.